Hello, everybody. This is Kedushim, and the parsha begins with before discussing the halachas of Yom Kippur. It mentions the fact the death of Aaron's two sons. And Rashi asks the obvious question: What does the fact that Aaron's two sons died have to do with the avodah that Aaron's going to perform on Yom Kippur? So Rashi brings a medrash that this is a warning of sorts. Aaron is about to perform a very, very, very holy, but a very, 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 so to speak, severe avodah. Going in to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to the Holy of Holies, requires that a person act perfectly. And therefore, as a warning, a reminder, we remind the tragedy of Aaron's two sons who died when they went in to the oil, into the Mishkan, without permission. But the Zayar is brought in the Barahetiv and Hilchas Yom Kippur. He makes a different connection. The Zayar says that when a person reads these parshias and a person is misabal, he mourns the death of these two great tzaddikim, Nadav and Aviyu. If a person does that, person mourns their death properly, then a person merits his zeichet to have a complete kapara on Yom Kippur. He merits to have a complete atonement, and he also merits a promise that his own children should never, God forbid, die in his own lifetime. That's the desire, and that's something a person is supposed to try to do when he reads these parshias, says the Barahitim. Now, the question is, how is a person supposed to be able to do that? How can a person really mourn the death of a tzaddik who died thousands of years ago who he never even met? And the truth is, this same question really applies to Sphira Sayyim. Right now we're in the month, we're, we're in the month of Sphira, where we mourn the death of the students of Rebbe Kiva. And again, we never met them. We don't know anything. We, know, we, know, we, know, we don't know them. How can a person mourn somebody who died thousands of years ago? So, Sikhas Musr, or Chaim Shalos explains, this is a very fundamental point. He says what the Zayar means, and what it means to mourn the death of somebody who died thousands of years ago, it means that a person has to understand something. We look at life right now, and we recognize that the way the world is, the way the Jewish people are, everything that exists nowadays, it's a... It's a, it's a product of decisions and actions and people that lived before us. We have Israel nowadays in a certain state. We live in a certain situation. We have a certain amount of Torah that we know and understand. All that comes from the great people before us who ensure that that could happen. Now imagine for a second that instead of having only two sons of iron alive, there was four sons of iron. If at this point right now, we have X amount of from Jews and X amount of Torah learning. Imagine we doubled that by having two more sons of iron. Imagine instead of having only five students, Rebbe Kiva was at 24,000 students stayed alive. Could you imagine the different level of Torah and Kiddushu we would have in our lives? That's what it means to mourn their deaths. It means to mourn the gap and the lack that we have when we're missing individuals who could have had an effect on our history. So really, what it means to mourn the death of these tzaddikim, says the Moser, is it means to recognize that every single individual has a huge effect, not necessarily apparent at the time that they're living, but throughout the rest of history, everything that they do and have done has a ripple effect that continues and continues and continues to an extreme measure. When a person mourns, it means he recognizes there's something missing. He wishes that thing could be a void to be filled. When a person recognizes that every individual has such great potential, it can make such a lasting effect, and a person tries to fill that void by getting himself to do more, 
that brings about atonement. That brings about the fullest level of kapar because that's the first step to doing tshuva and doing the right thing when a person recognizes how powerful his actions are. I just read recently one of the uh, Jewish magazines, I think it was Ami, interviewed a fellow from Baltimore, a caterer, his name is Mr. Gross. And in the interview, he mentioned the story that happened with his grandmother. He mentioned how his father grew up in um, somewhere Pennsylvania, I forgot the name of the town, and his father's father had died young, and his grandmother was left with seven children, a widow with seven children, and she was a very religious person, and she really, really pushed to keep the family from and to push her children to stay from. Each one of the kids tried to help out to support the family, some became peddlers, some got different trades, but when World War II started, two of her sons got drafted into the American army, and because she was so worried about them, but not only was she worried about them physically, she also worried about their spirituality, she started to fast every Monday and Thursday, the whole time that they were at war. And one day, one of her sons who had not been drafted came in and told her, Mom, we just bombed you know, Japan, the war is over, Japan surrendered, you can eat, it was a Monday morning, go eat, Mom, you can eat breakfast. She said, look, I sent two from Jewish boys to the army, I'm not eating until I get back two from Jewish boys. And sure enough, when they finally got back, the boys went, and the first thing they did, they came to Shult, they dive in Shachas, in the, Shult, the local town Shult, and then she started eating back again on Monday and Thursday. And I was thinking about this story, I never heard of this lady before, you know, I think a lot of people have heard of her before, she's not a famous Tzadikis, she's a widow who lived somewhere in Pennsylvania, who brought up a firm family in America after World War II. Now, Baruch Hashem, she has a great, huge amount of descendants from children, grandchildren, and if that lady hadn't made the decision to push herself, to not give up on herself, to not start feeling bad for herself, but to actually just push and try to fight to have from children and grandchildren, it would look differently. Kaiso would look differently, but we would never know that. It's always a matter of each person in their own situation making the decisions that push them. That's what shapes history. And that's what it means when we look at the beginning of this parasha and we miss Nadav and Aviyu, it means we recognize that if Nadav Aviyu had been here, things would be different. So let's make sure that we ourselves don't make such a void going forward in history. One of the main parts of the Unkipper service of the Kaingadal was the two Seirim, the two goats. The Kaingadal had to take two identical goats and he drew lots. One of them was brought as a carbon, La Hashem, inside the Beis Amikdash or the Mishkan, and the other one was sent to be pushed off a cliff as a carbon la azazel, which the Ramban tells us was a form of a bribe to the Satan, so to speak, whatever that means. But the Mepharshim will ask, and seemingly it's strange, you have two identical goats, and yet they seem to have very different purposes. One is seeming to be brought in the Holy of Holies, it's a beautiful thing, and one is seemingly going off the cliff to azazel, how can you say they should look the same? Why is the Torah so strict that the two goats have to be identical if they have such different purposes? So, the Mepharshim explain, they say that really, the two goats symbolize the two different forces inside a person. A person has a Yetzir HaTayv and a Yetzir Hara. And the truth is that they're supposed to be identical in the sense that they're supposed to both be used for a good purpose. A person needs his Yetzir HaTayv and a person needs his Yetzir Hara. They're both essential in service of Hashem. A person can't eat properly unless he has an appetite. A person doesn't have a drive 
to do stuff, unless he harnesses his Yetzirah for money and for all other kinds of desires, that's what makes a physical person move. But a person has to harness it for the right reasons. So both his Yetzirah and his Yetzirah are identical because they're both meant for a good purpose. They're both meant to make things happen. That's what we say in Davening. We're supposed to force our Yetzir, harness it, all that energy that it provides, and use it for a good thing. And that's why both the goats are identical, because they both serve Hashem. The Yetzir HaToyim and the Yetzir HaRa. That's the goal. However, said the Mepharshim, if, unfortunately, a guy is weak, and he doesn't manage to harness his Yetzir HaRa, to completely chain it and use it only for Avedis Hashem, his Yetzirah, in fact, heads off Lazazel, and his Yetzirah Tayyib is the only one working right now towards the Kedesh HaKadoshim. At least, at least, says Mavarshim, make it that your Yetzirah Tayyib looks as good as your Yetzirah. All that money, all that energy, everything you spend to take yourself off that cliff Lazazel, at least expend the same amount of energy and the same amount of money. And the same amount of drive towards your pursuits of things that are going to bring you to Hashem. Are bringing you to Kedesh Hashem. Make sure your lulav, your esrig, make sure your tefillin, make sure all your mitzvahs are as top-notch and as expensive and as high-end as the money you spend on your car and your gadgets and everything else that takes you to Lazazel. And that is the message of having two identical goats being brought on Yom Kippur. The parashat continues and tells us the mitzvah loitignoivu. Don't steal. And a person shouldn't basically refute and say that and lie. And the yeshiva of Navardic, and the Muslim yeshiva of Navardic, they used to say over a story. It sounds like it was a real life story. I don't think it was just a muscle. Of a poor farmer who was waiting outside the post office for the mailman to come. It was right before Pesach. And he was very hopeful that one of his friends or family had sent him some money for Yantif. He was in a very, very tough spot. He needed money badly. And he was sitting there waiting for the mail coach to arrive. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's getting hungrier and hungrier. And finally, sure enough, the mail coach gets there and he can't hold himself in. He watches the mailman go in to the, to, into, into, the, into the post office and he's just looking around and he just can't. And finally, he sees a big fat envelope there, and he grabs it, and he runs. And he runs behind the post office, and he quickly opens it up. And sure enough, it's full of cash. And as he's about to grab the cash, two policemen come over to him, and they grab him. And as they're taking him away to jail for stealing mail, he looks at the front of the envelope, and he looks at his, so to speak, either joy or sadness. He realizes that the letter was sent to him. His relative had indeed sent him money. And he screams to the police and said, look, it was my letter. I was allowed to take it. And they said, it doesn't make a difference. You stole from the mail coach. And they threw him to jail for the week. And the yeshiva, the O would say that this is the same thing with anybody, any one of us who takes stuff that doesn't belong to us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides how much money a person is supposed to have for every year. And a person can get it one of two ways. He can get it legally. He can get it the right way without any pain and suffering. Or he can try to steal it. And he'll get the same much at the end of the day. He won't get anything extra, but he'll have to deal with all the consequences of stealing something. And why go through it? Why do that for nothing? A positive version of a story about being careful of all the people's money is one of the Rishayim, whose name is Rabdavid Abu Draham. 
And you know, a lot of people question, what is his name, Abu Draham? So they say, the story goes, that Reb David owned a, a, um, a store that sold spices. And he had a custom that whenever he would, people would buy spices from him, he'd always measure it out in durhams, which is a measure apparently of that place. And he'd always take a, a heaping durham. He'd always give a little extra just to make sure that he wasn't cheating his customers. And even if a guy would buy a very large order, he would still do it in durhams and always give a little bit extra. That way to ensure he never, he never cheated his customers. One time a non-Jewish customer came to his place and the guy made a large order and he sat there measuring out with his little durhams. Sure enough, each one heaping. And finally, he packages up the package and the guy leaves the store. After the guy leaves, Abdavid sits there and he thinks to himself, did I mess up on the number of durhams? Did I forget to put one extra durham? And he sat there and he wasn't sure back and forth, you know, look, even though, even if I did mess up on the number, but still I give each one a little extra so for sure I covered the difference. Back and forth, he decided, you know what? No, too bad. I got to go and give the guy the extra durham. So he puts one in his cup, a little extra spices, closes his store, and he runs out after the non-Jewish, non-Jewish customer, chases him, and he catches him finally. And the guy says, what do I do? What do I do? What do you want from me? So like, no, 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 I think I made a mistake. I think I gave you one extra one. I, I, I forgot to give you one of your dorms. Here it is, and here's your, here's your spices that I forgot to give you. And this person, was, this customer, was so impressed with the honesty of Rabdavid that he was MacGyver. He ended up converting. He was so blown away with the honesty of Jews that he ended up converting. And therefore, they named Reb David Abu, as in the father of Durham. The father of Durham, as in he was the one who made somebody, made somebody Jewish through his special, so to speak, you know, piousness when it comes to measuring out his Durhams. And you think about it, we're talking about somebody who was a Rishan, one of the greatest Torah scholars. He wrote all the commentary, all the tefillahs. He's used in halacha all the time. But he's known for forever by this name about specifically about how honest and how pious he was. Torah commands us, A person is obligated to rebuke their fellow, fellow, fellow Jew. The Gemara tells us, however, that there's a limit. Once the person you're trying to rebuke begins to either curse you or hit you, at that point, you're, not, you're no longer obligated to rebuke them. And the Yaakov Kamenetsky, he asks the obvious question, he says, where else do you find that there's a mitzvah in the Torah, an obligation in the Torah, which has a limit that once someone starts making fun of you or someone starts hitting you, you don't have to do it. A guy decides he has to sit in a sukkah on sukkahs, it's a mitzvah, I say, it's a positive commandment in the Torah to sit in a sukkah on sukkahs. And another guy comes by and starts making fun of you, you, you frumak, you're sitting in the sukkah on sukkahs. That's it, you leave out of the sukkah? No. Mitzvah say there, Isa. You do it if your life's in danger, maybe. But just because a guy slapped you or cursed you, you'd leave a sukkah. So why, when it comes to the mitzvah of a cheach techiach, of rebuking somebody, is there this limit of that the person is absolved once the other guy starts cursing him out? She explains as follows: says the Rambam writes in the mitzvah of techach on this mitzvah rebuke. The Rambam writes that a person has to do rebuke. Because, not because he's trying to kind of show that he's holier than thou to the other person, but he has to do it out of love and caring for the other person. He has to be that he's so bothered and so worried about that person's future in the world to come and how he's going to suffer and he wants to save him. And therefore he goes and he shows him what's right and what's wrong. And says the Rambam, 
You have to let the person know. This person who you're rebuking, you have to let him know that you're only doing it because you love him. You do it privately. You do it in a way he does try to minimize the amount that he gets embarrassed. And you have to make sure that he knows that you're only doing it for his sake. Says Rebbe if a person begins to hit at you or curse you for rebuking him, then that's the biggest sign that he's not getting that message that you're doing it for his sake. At that point, you can't do the mitzvah of a chiyach to chiyach. At that point, it's no longer relevant because he's not getting it that you're doing it for his sake. And that's why specifically with this mitzvah, the obligation is off once the guy starts cursing or hitting. But the depth that Yaakov is telling us is every time we rebuke somebody, it has to come from the fact that we love them, that we care about them, and we're trying to do what's best for them. And we have an obligation to make that clear to them when we rebuke them. I want to end off with one last part. We say, the parasha tells us, Every Jew is commanded to love his fellow Jew as he loves himself. And Torah adds on two words. I am Hashem. I am your God. And the question all the Farshim struggle with is, what does it mean Love your fellow brother, like love your fellow Jew, like you love yourself, because I am Ani Hashem. What's the connection? So the Meshachachma explains, he says a very, very powerful thing. He says, the level of achtos, the level of unity that we see amongst the Jewish people, this level that a Jewish person, every single Jew can be commanded, and every single Jew fulfills on some level this obligation to love another Jew, kamaycha, like himself. Something that amazing, something that powerful, the only way that can happen is because there's a creator in this world. There's Ani Hashem. Because Hashem made this world and He imbued every single Jew with this ability, this, this, this amazing midah to be able to get, not just take care of himself, but to look out for other Jews and to be there even to the level of Kamaycha, even to the level of himself. I wanted to say a story I heard from a Wallerstein um, he said the story over, he saw in the Sefer, there was a young boy in Yerushalayim who, his grandfather was a war survivor, and he noticed that his grandfather, when he put on his phone, he noticed his grandfather didn't have any hair on his arms. Both of his forearms, they had no hair on them. So he asked his grandfather, Grandpa, why don't you have any hair? She said, I'll tell you when you're bar mitzvah. But you're bar mitzvah, I'll tell you why. Fine, the boy kept pestering him, the grandfather kept, hold on, I'm not telling you to tell you bar mitzvah. That's it. Back and forth. Finally, the boy forgot about it. Sure enough, it's his bar mitzvah. And they're celebrating, and it's in a beautiful hall in Yushalayim. And all of a sudden, in the middle of bar mitzvah, a man walks in. And this man, he has no hair on his body. No hair on his head, no hair on his eyebrows. And everyone assumes that this person is unfortunately going through chemotherapy and that's probably why they have no hair. And this man walks into the hall and he sees the boy's grandfather and they hug and they hold each other and they embrace for minutes and they're crying. And finally, this man with no hair, he sits down, the grandfather brings him to the head table and he sits down next to the grandfather and the Bar and the Maritzabacher tell the grandfather tells Maritzabacher, I want to tell you who this person is. I want to tell you a story. 
Remember you asked me many, many, many years ago about why I have no hair on my arms. So let me tell you the story. So the grandfather turns to the person who has no hair and says, you tell the story. So this person begins his story. And he says that he was in Poland, I believe. And the Nazis rounded up his whole family, his mother, his father, his brothers, and sisters. And they take them to the camps. And for once they get out of the cattle cars, his parents get sent to the line to the gas chambers. And he gets sent to the line to the, to the labor camps to work. And he goes, and he's waiting online. And the way it worked was that they had, they'd make, they'd make these, these people go into these pits full of lye, of acid basically, to burn off officially any lice that they might have. So they, they make everyone strip down, and they'd make them walk and then go jump into this pit. It burnt everything off, and they'd jump out, and then they would go out and, and get their prison uniforms. So this boy's going, and he's sitting there, and he's talking, thinking to himself that they just took everything from me. They took my family, took my parents, took my siblings, and now they take in my clothing. What's the point of living anymore? What's the point? And he goes, and eventually he goes, and he, when it's his turn to go into the pit of acid, he decides he's going to stay under. And he goes into the pit, and he doesn't come up. And he's staying under, and he's staying under. And finally someone grabs him out. And this person who grabbed him out was this boy's grandfather. And this boy's grandfather pulls him out and says, what are you doing? You're going to die in there. And the boy tells him, I'm nothing left to live for. Why should I even bother coming out? They took everything from me. And why should I live there? Down there, I'm there with Hashem. I'm there with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's it. I'm happy. I don't need to come out for this... And his grandfather, his boy's grandfather, pulled him out. He tells him, look, I promise you, we're going to get out of this. And you're going to come to my grandson's bar mitzvah. And I want you to promise me that you're going to come. And his boy looked at him and he was just, he couldn't believe what this guy was saying. He said, are you crazy? We're sitting here, look at this, they're murdering everybody. We're not going to get out of this place. He told him, you promised me. So he promised him. And he said, his, his grandfather, his boy's grandfather, took him out and in the barracks, and he tried to heal him. But obviously, after being under the acid for so long, this boy never was able to regrow back his any hair, and that's why for the rest of his life he had no hair. And the grandfather, this boy's grandfather, his hands had been so badly burned from the acid, that's why he had no hair on his hands. But he told this boy, he said, I'm here now by your grandfather, by his, by his grandson's bar mitzvah, just like he promised me. And we're here together to celebrate your bar mitzvah. Now besides the incredible betachan, the incredible clarity of Betachan that that boy's grandfather had at that point. But there's also a different idea. There's a different idea here of Klai Yisrael has an ability to be there for each other, to pull each other out of the worst times, and that's something that only can happen because Ani Hashem, because Baruch Hu gives us that me, that gives us that ability to be there for each other and to pull each other through the craziest of times. We should all be Zaycha to have a wonderful Shabbos.